As usual, I'm paralyzed by my own virtue. That's me, right? How many times can you scribble, how dare you, in your margins of one New York Times op-ed from 1999? Welcome to Gordon Snyder. All right. Yeah, start your show. All right, relax. Here we are, a Cast Iron Brains, a podcast that has established that baseball is life, which raises an important question. Now that Little League baseball season is over, what the hell do we do with ourselves now? My name is Bob, sitting across the way from my good friend and co-host. That's Abe. How you doing tonight, Abe? Doing well, Bob. Yeah, here we are. Lori's here too. How you doing tonight, Lori? I am looking forward to this tight, focused, short episode. Mm. And to answer your question, uh, we get jobs. Tonight is Monday, June 25th, 2020. No, it's not a yeah. Monday at all. It's a Sunday. Correction. June 25th, 2023. Recording on a Sunday night because tomorrow night we have a swim meet, a makeup swim meet for the children. And then Tuesday night, if we recorded Tuesday night, which you said you can't, so uh, beside the point. But going to even if we game. were. Yeah. Eight, ooh, nice. If we were to record Tuesday night, I have a flight out of Charlottesville at 5 in the morning on Wednesday morning. Ooh. So I wouldn't have time to edit or really put the show together in a meaningful way. Even if I did uh, just insert Abe as, uh, like, I uh, programmed the AI to give me the re- requisite number we're of... getting close. Peyton Manning-related uh, uh, hatred <laughs> topics and then sliding in the right number of how dare yous and... I don't, Come on. I don't know about that, Bob, uh, and that sort of stuff. And with my uh, listening schedule, it will take a few weeks for me to listen to this episode, and I will forget what I actually said, and I'll accept as fact. Right. Close <laughs> enough. That sounds like me. It's good enough. Let's see here. Sunday, we... Uh, we'll do the quick baseball recap. Everyone's yeah, wondering. Yeah, everyone obviously yeah. wants Abe to hear yes. all about our away. baseball results. I don't remember where we left our listeners. We left out. Well, it was Monday. We hadn't played McIntyre yet. Right. There was so a we rain had not yet, thing. Was it? Was right. So we had the mm-hmm. a rain postponement against the what I said was the number one team in our tournament here. We got our asses kicked uh, pretty effectively in the first game of that uh, against those guys. Ultimately, gave up thirteen runs in the first inning, and it was. It wasn't that bad. I mean, obviously, you can't really say that it was a close game when you give up 13 runs in the first inning. But it wasn't as bad as it seems to give up 13 runs in the inning. And I won't go through the play-by-play to justify that statement, but Little League is weird. Let's just leave it at that. And that game ended up 14-2. to And we played better than the score indicated. Uh, but the, the bad news about that game is that it left us in the position where because we gave up so many runs in that game we ended up being the four seed in the entire weekend tournament right so we go from being a two and one team feeling pretty good about ourselves only having lost to what i perceived as the best team in the tournament to now being the four seed that has to now play again 
this same team in the first round of the elimination tournament. Which, uh, by the way... It's hard to beat the same team twice, they say. <laughs> I did not know that that was uh, one of the possibilities because I remember last week you were either going to shift into like a better situation or like it was like one, two... Yeah. Right, so I was mistaken because I thought that it would go to the head-to-heads, but because there were three two-and-one teams and one four-and-oh team... Instead of going head-to-head, because we didn't all play each other because of the nature of this round robin, it instead – like, if it had just been two teams at 2-1, and one, they would have gone, was there a head-to-head matchup? What was the result of that? That team gets the higher seed. But because there were three teams all 2-1 and one, and there was no uh, consistent head-to-head situation, they have to go to number of runs allowed as the first tiebreaker okay. in that situation. And we gave up one more run than – across three games than the uh, team that ends up in the three seed. Oh, wow. So, it came down to one run. Came down to one wow. single run, which means that I can point to uh, the specific errors by very specific children throughout the weekend to say, <laughs> this was the asshole that cost us the spot. And that's when I lost sleep right. because my whole life I've tried to avoid basically team sports because I didn't ever want – a team to lose because of a mistake I made. Like I literally my whole life have avoided that feeling, but because I know that my son was one of the, like, I don't think he quite knew, but like I was feeling the guilt that he could have potentially felt. It was awful. I've gone like literally my whole life avoiding that feeling that I got to feel on Tuesday night. Yeah. Anyway, so that's our situation. Whatever you got to play the, you know, you want to you want to be the best. You got to beat the best, you know. So, so, so after taking a beating on Tuesday night, uh, then it absolutely we have a deluge on Wednesday night. It rained so hard for so long. For like forty eight hours, it rained. It was like we were in a different part of the world. Like it was bizarre. It was like a being in the jungle or something because it rained yeah, it would go from raining hard to raining lightly to raining hard and that's it yeah it just rained for two fucking days and so we couldn't really practice finally on friday we got out there and we had a spectacular practice like it was great we were we know that we're going to go up against this kid who throws real hard so we're getting up in front of our kids and we're just we're, we're 25 feet away from them, and we're throwing fastballs at them. Like, we're going to teach you assholes how to hit these hard and fast baseballs. And they had great practices, like every single one of them. It was an awesome, awesome day of practice. And at the end, I said to uh, one of the other coaches, I was like, so, awesome practice, huh? He's like, yeah, best practice yet. I was like, you know what that means. And he goes, what, uh, we're going to win tomorrow by 100? I said, no, we're going to get our asses kicked tomorrow. That's, that's how it that goes. That's what it has meant. Is that, it has always worked. That's how for, it works? In my experience with these kids, it's like they have an awesome practice. The next game goes that poorly. If, they have, if we have a totally shit-for-brains practice where nobody's paying attention and nobody hits any balls and nobody makes any plays in the outfield or the infield, uh, the game turns out totally fine. Huh. Uh, so I wonder I was, why... Why that is? Is it like a false sense of confidence? Like, oh, we got this. I I'm, think it's, it's probably coincidence. Regression to the mean uh, is all it is. It's just <laughs> the law of averages. But anyway, it felt good, though, the next day. Like, we get up there, and first of all, I spend – me and the, one of the other guys spends a couple of hours working on the field to try to get the field ready to play on because of all the rain that we had. Uh, 
But the kids get there, and they're in relatively high spirits, and it feels like we're going to be just fine. And for the first five innings of the game, it is going very well. We are winning one to nothing. We got a, a, a run in the first inning, and the only regret coming out of the first three or four innings is that we had runners on base in the first and second innings with less than two outs that we didn't convert into runs. So we had bases loaded at one point. We had two runners on with less than two outs. And we could only scratch the one run across. And it felt like, man, we're really letting them hang on in a situation where, by the feel of this game, we're kind of dominating. Right. Like, they weren't doing anything. They had, We had only allowed them one base runner through the first four innings, I believe. And, like, our pitching was solid. Everything was going great. But you'd, like, you know, you let a good team hang around, and eventually something's going to happen. And in the fifth inning, the... It sort of felt like we still had our... I mean, you don't like to talk in these sorts of terms when you're talking about children. But it felt like we had our foot on their fucking throats still at this point. Like, we had all of the momentum and all of the energy of this game. And it they, they just seemed listless and dead. And, like, yeah, they're a good team, but we're making outs. And we're, we're, we're doing fine. And then the first play in the fifth inning is a grounder. I forget who it went to. But Calvin's playing first base. And they called him safe because Calvin's foot was off the bag, was the claim of the umpire. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that Calvin's foot didn't come off the bag. We all watched his foot come off the bag, but it was because he was stretching, made the catch, and then his foot came off the bag. Okay. So the umpire's just looking at the bag and sees the foot come off and either doesn't hear or didn't see the fact that Calvin had the ball first. And he did. He absolutely did. It was a blown call by the umpire. He's just, he was flat wrong. I got confirmation from the other team's head coach who was their first base uh, coach, like the guy, uh, like the base coach for them. Uh, he thought that the kid was out. We all thought the kid was out. The people in the press box behind the home plate all thought that the kid was out, but it doesn't matter because the asshole umpire says he's safe. And Whatever. At, at this level, there isn't a interaction that you would have to share your thoughts. We all sort of groaned, but it, that's not the sort of play where you can be like, can we appeal this yeah. or whatever? Yeah. And so the first base guy calls him safe, and then we look down at the home plate umpire, and we're like kind of throw our arms up like, hey, what, what did you think about that? And he's making the – he came off the bag motion okay. with his hand. It's like – so he's affirming the call, also, so there's no one further to appeal yeah. it to. Both umpires are making like this claim. I like to sit in the – I mean, I don't like to sit there, but my choice – seat in this field is right in the middle of center field where I can see everything sort of from a straight on angle. Mm -hmm. I thought the kid was safe. Like, I don't know anything. Right. I can't really see first base at all, but I didn't think like, uh, that guy was clearly out. Right. Like, you know, right. We are 10 close. feet. We're 10 feet from the bag standing there at the dugout, though. Like, we're watching it happen. Like, he, we were closer than the umpire who was playing down the line a little bit. Like he, was, he was fucking out. Whatever. I, I have no doubt in my mind that Calvin made the play. Doesn't matter. What is a turning point? You might say that. So, <laughs> next kid walks, and then, and that was a fine, like, looked like legitimate walk to me. The kid who walked next to load the bases walked on a pitch where, like, you don't often hear 
the whole crowd like gasp at once at a, a bad call. But this was a strike. We heard the entire press box gasp when it was called a ball. We our entire dugout gasped. Our little catcher just goes what and he's like <laughs> and he's holding because he's holding his glove in the middle of the plate at like where he caught it not like i'm framing it where i actually caught it four feet this way and i brought it back this way he's just holding the ball and he just and he hadn't chirped at all at the umpire all day long even though he's given he had sort of a wide zone whatever it doesn't matter he just goes what <laughs> and, yeah. and uh uh what's funny is like i immediately Sort of, I forget exactly what I said, but I was like, I admonished him to not talk to the umpire okay. in that fashion. Uh, but the head coach, who's at first base, looks at our at our bench and shrugs and goes, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, so like their team's right. coach knows that this was a fucking strike. Everybody in the ballpark knows that this was a strike, but for some reason it's a walk. Right. Uh, and that ends our starting pitcher's day, by the way. So that's it. He's thrown his 75 pitches. Okay. He's now walked the bases loaded in the... The coach's kid, by the way. Right. Kid, coach's kid in the fifth inning, walks the bases loaded. Uh, still one nothing us, but there's nobody out. There's three runners on, and we, we're bringing in a new, a new pitcher. All right. So <laughs> this is more detail probably than anybody wants. Of, but there was a lot of coaching going on. Lots of coaching yeah. happening. So we, we play our infield in entirely because at this point you've got the bases loaded a grounder that gets to your infield scores a tying run right unless you're playing your players in in which case if it's hit right at them because of course if you play in your angles are worse on all of the balls that are hit in the infield so the hope is that because your four infielders are playing in somebody will be positioned roughly where the ball is going you pick it up you throw it home you get the out and then you you move on to the next one right so both corner infielders are playing uh, at the bag or a couple of steps in from the bag, and the shortstop and the second baseman are playing uh, basically in the baseline or maybe a step inside the baseline. Rather than playing deep in the hole where you normally see them almost on the grass, they're playing in. Uh, the, the pitcher who had started the game has now moved to first base, and Calvin goes to second base. So that's our, that's our alignment, right? Uh, the pitch is popped up on the infield. It's the, the only fair way of saying what happens. And this is significant because of something called the infield fly rule, which is very confusing to a lot of people, but is actually very simple, which is that if there are runners on base in a position to be forced, right? So a, a, a runner on first, runners on first and second, or runners on first, second, and third, which is our situation, the bases are loaded, and there's less than two outs, right? Because, uh, so if there's uh, runners on base and less than two outs in a position where the runners can be forced and a ball is popped up, the umpire should immediately signal that the batter is out, right? Okay. Because that's that's an infield fly. Because otherwise, what you could do if you were like a sneaky, you, clever yeah. ball player you can game it. is that yeah. you pretend like you're going to catch the ball and then you just – it you, you catch it in your glove and then you drop it or you just let it fall at your feet. And because of the way baseball works – uh, uh, a player then, or the players on the bases would then have to yeah. uh, pants on fire, run their asses around the bases as fast as they can in order to avoid the force play, right? right. So what it, the rule is in place to protect the offense. 
to make it so that the defense can't fuck with the offense and just drop an easy out in order to turn a ball into a double play. Crucially, that matters, right? Because you're, this is not something to protect bad defense. Instead, it's something to protect an offense from having unreasonable, unfair double plays or triple plays turned against them. Right. The umpire did not signal for an infield fly. And because our defense is playing in, our first baseman, who's the coach's kid who started the game and pitched a great four-plus innings on the mound, uh, looks up and sort of like... He's, because he's moving back and because it's popped up kind of relatively high, he gets himself spun around. Like he doesn't, you know, it's hard to locate your body in space when you're moving backwards. So he's moving backwards, spinning one way. He, he basically turns to the wrong shoulder. And ultimately, the ball falls at his feet uh, and just lands there. And then everybody takes the fuck off. Right. And or, or really, because they'd all gone halfway, they would have been fucking out, by the way. If, like, if he catches it, it's an easy double play because he just throws back to one of the bases where these kids had left. But instead, it's on the ground and the players advance to uh, score. They all they all move up one base, basically. And we are like utterly perplexed by why the infield fly rule wasn't applied. Right. And by the way, this is a rule that can be applied retroactively. So even if he doesn't call it right when the ball goes up into the air, which to be clear is when he's supposed to, he can still say you're right. That should have been an inf that's an infield fly rule. Runners have to go back because I didn't make the call appropriately. Uh, and the batter is out. And this seems to be uh, a pretty easy argument to make, right? Like hey, it was but the ball landed if you have first base, second base, and the pitcher's mound, and you drew lines in from all those places toward each other, it landed there. Okay. In the infield. It landed. After having popped up. Right. I mean, it's, it, it was. There's no other way right. to describe. Yeah. Like. If, if you were animating this in a GIF with like a, a, a diamond shape and little X's and circles right. for the different players and the ball, like it's what you would find in the rule book of what an infield fly rule should look like. And so we go to the umpire and he's like, why wasn't the infield fly rule called? This is a textbook definition of an infield fly. And he's like, oh, it's a judgment call. And in my judgment, that's not a routine play because your infielders were playing in. That because they were playing in, it's no longer a routine play for them to make. It's like, first of all, asshole, these are nine-year-old children. <laughs> they don't there know is, what they're doing. There is no such thing right. as a routine play in Little League Baseball. Right. Everything is like, holy shit, a baseball play happened. <laughs> when a grounder goes to the shortstop and they successfully corral it and throw it across the first base, that looks like a routine play. It's, but that's a it's fucking shocking. miracle. It's, it's gorgeous. It's, it, it's like the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And yeah, because it's All-Stars, it happens more frequently than it than it did during the regular season right. but still it's like oh wow it's anything but fucking routine anytime a routine baseball play happens okay uh so that's first of all secondly nonsense this was a ball that was popped up on the infield with less than two outs and the bases were loaded that's the infield fly rule. A thousand times, it's the infield fly rule. You don't get to say that because the coaches positioned the kids six feet from where they normally do, that all of a sudden it's no longer a routine play. What are you talking about? So it's us making this case 
like forcefully making this case right. at this point. The guy came, or was that after? Was the that tournament director. So we're having this conversation. The people in the press box, which I mean, we call it the press box, but it's like the booth behind the plate where the it's announcer the sits. Has got observers from the so we have a couple of umpire observers and we have the the person who's the official scorer and a couple other hot shots or whatever back there. And they're like, Do you want to read the rule book? Like to the umpire. They're like, Do you I have the rule book here? Do you guys need to see this? Because everybody fucking here knows this is the infield fly. The tournament director, who's this like 77-year-old obese man, comes waddling down the field. I hope they never hear your podcast, right. dude. This is tough. It's not it's just the reality of the situation. I'm describing life as it is. I think Steve's a great guy. He's also a nearly octogenarian obese man quite impressive uh, should yeah he probably shouldn't be out there in the 90 degree oppressive humid heat uh but god bless him he did a great job running this tournament this weekend and last uh but anyway uh uh, describing the world as i see it it's fine there's no judgment on steve great guy he comes all the way down the field and he's like i don't know what he thought was going to happen but he talks to the umpire he's like so why wasn't the infield fly rule applied here uh, to get an explanation for himself? He's like, oh, you know, well, uh, my uh, associate out there and I agree that it's a judgment call and we judge that that's not a routine play. It's like, all right. I mean, is because it's a judgment call, there's like literally nothing we can do about but it. But are, are, is everything open to judgment? So. They can decide. Not everything, but that in particular is a judgment call. So it's not something that like should bring to mind when the in Chipper Jones's last game when the infield fly rule was called in the outfield for some reason. Right. There was like a fucking 180, 180 foot uh, infield fly rule called against Chipper Jones to end uh, Chipper Jones's career disaster. Anyway. Finally, it's, this might have gone on for it was a few minutes, five to seven it minutes. It was like five like minutes. It, it, it was, was a, very tense. Five minutes. Right, and of course the kids are all just standing there. Oh and, yeah, the conversation. I wish so much that I could have overheard because while this was all going on, sort of like Calvin at second base, kid at first base, pitcher, and then the right fielder kind of all got together and were talking, yeah. and it was just like. What are they talking yeah. about? Like, what do they think they know, these little kids? <laughs> they were just, like, talking. It was cute. This goes on, like I said, for some time. It was, it, like, five minutes. Ultimately, it's now it's one-to-one. The bases are still loaded. There's still nobody out. We're, you know, somebody from the other team's parents' side has yelled at our coach to uh, get off the field, you big crybaby, uh, something to that during effect. During the five minutes? Uh, right, during the five minutes, somebody's like, uh, you know, get out of here, you stop crying, you big baby, something like that. Uh, it's like, look, man, first of all, this guy is not the kind, kind of guy that you want to say this to. Like, he is not, you know, he's, he's likely to take it personally. He's uh, got a big heart. He, right. he heard it? Like, this is a... Yeah, it was, it was heard. I heard it, too. I yeah. didn't hear it at all. I but heard it. Like, yeah, apparently, we, the sound in this place is weird. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's an ugly moment. Uh, and we've, I felt bad that the kids had to like stand around like idiots while all the grown-ups figured it out. But like it was a fully righteous cause by us. They fucked it up. And it's just the reality is what it is. Can you play Moving under on. protest? You know, like they do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the formal uh, protest situation is, but the you know the result is the result ultimately. Yeah. I shit you not, Abe. The very next batter 
Two pitches later. Hits a pop fly. No way. Over the first baseman's head. No. Very next pitch. That lands in the exact no. same spot. Exact same on spot. On the dirt. The exact. No way. Like, I, I could not yes. find two marks <laughs> next to each other is how close this was. It might have literally been the exact same spot on the field. Did it register with the audience? Like, whoa. It registered with, with all of us. We all knew what the fuck had just happened. So this one wasn't as high. This one, no, whereas the was, last one had a big, strong up. parabola. Like, it was a, a, a very clearly... A fly ball. This was much closer to a bloop okay. or a yes. or a, a pop or yes. something like that. It was. It was. Yeah. The first one went way up high, and then came down. Yeah. This one arced over to the same spot. Nothing at all. Nothing you could call a line drive. But it was arced. A, a bloop or a pop. And by the way, still could have been called, and it could have been called infield fly rule. And the other team wouldn't have had anything to bitch about. It just would have been, oh, well, yeah, I guess that could be. So at this point, my fellow coach, uh, our head coach, is in no position to go talk to the umpire because he will get himself <laughs> tossed, right? Yeah. Like it will, it, will be, it will be ugly. And so he's not moving. He's furious. He cannot move. So I, I walk out of the dugout and I call time. I'm like, hang on, hang on. So uh, can we get an explanation on why – why the infield fly rule wasn't applied on, on this play. And he goes, uh, judgment call. That one wasn't really a fly ball, more, more of a liner than the last one. And I said, okay, so the last one was a fly ball on the infield. Then I just wanted to clear that up. And then I turned around and went back to the dugout. And he just, and he just, by the way, the umpire just like stares me down. He, I get no response out of that because, Obviously, it's a shit-eating thing of me to say, yeah. but it's also like a thousand percent true right. because he has now just said the thing that I needed him to say to prove that he was fucking wrong five minutes ago about the previous call. Right. Like to justify the non-call in this second moment, which like as though it were written by a stupid screenwriter is like how unlikely is yeah, it that the exact same thing happens uh, with the, within the very next pitch or two. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Right. Immediately. <laughs> Immediately. And like to get him to then basically admit how he'd fucked it up just a moment ago. <laughs> One uh, pitch ago. To justify his failure to call it this time was uh, exactly what I wanted and needed in that moment. Were, uh, uh, did you show restraint there? Were you like try want to say more or you just left it? I just want to extract the information I need and I'm going to... Just. Well, and, and I, my, the, one of the other coaches says to me, well, you're not going to get this one if we didn't get the last one. I was like, yeah, I know. I wanted to prove – I want – like that, that's the point. Yeah. I wanted to prove the point. Yeah, you don't know me well, but I, I am very – I am very difficult, so. <laughs> anyway. I need to feel good about it. So then we're in the same situation. Now it's two to one. They've taken a lead on these bogus back-to-back non-infield fly rule calls. And still nobody out. And then the wheels just fucking come off. I think we walk the next kid. And walks it's and three to one. Then there's, then there's another big time hit because this is a good team. And so they got a couple of hits in a row with the bases loaded. And they end up going up eight to one. And that's just it. They, then we come up against their... Their professional baseball pitcher. Right. They're the best kid in the tournament. The kid who can get up there and zip it in there at 65 miles an hour. And we don't stand a chance. 
Uh, and it was just a bummer. Like, and, and it was obvious whether it was two to one or eight to one, like they had seized, like I right. said earlier, our foot was on their throats. And then all of a sudden we had no life left. They, it just flips just in a second like that. Did the, uh, the kids took all of this, the, the whole thing in stride, like they weren't like overly yeah. sad. I mean, they were sad. Well, they yeah. were bummed. Yeah. And they thought, yeah. they thought that. Especially because after the first game that we played against these guys, like I was saying about that 13-run first inning, and I'm being dead serious, we hit the ball in in the bottom of the first. We didn't score any runs. We didn't have any hits. But we hit the ball harder than them three times than they did in the entire first inning. So, like... Just bad luck. It was just awful luck. We hit three legit, like, could be a double if it make, if it doesn't get hit right at a guy over and over again. And the, the ball was hit harder by us in the first inning than it was by them in the entire first inning, even though they had, like, fucking eight hits or something. Also... It, it was just bad luck. And it, this and like, pitcher, who who's a good... He, on the other team, when he's not pitching, he's playing shortstop. So anything that goes anywhere near him, he, he, that's it. Like, yeah. you're out because he can get to all of them and then get that ball to wherever he needs to get it to because he's just got an arm. Right. And, and, like, whatever. So our kids were already in a position where, like, they recognized that that first game was not a true representation of what we could do against this team. And then for this to happen, it's like, I don't know. It just feels bad. Like, you just feel bad for them because we played a better we overall we played a much better game than they did with the exception of that one very goofy out of control inning that wasn't their fault at all was there a uh, it, after an action report kind of thing like at the end where you talk to the kids about what just happened yeah of course and like we try not to go and you also you don't try to allow them to like blame circumstances beyond their control yeah. because like also, that's not a lesson that you want to teach. You're not going to teach them that it's not fair. Right. So we, you know, we're like super proud of you. You battled all the way through. You had them until you didn't. And like, that's just reality. Sometimes you go out and you're the, like, they all knew that's a better team than we are. And it didn't matter for five innings. We were hanging with them and we were going to beat them until rather suddenly we weren't. And they should be proud of themselves. And that was and I think what they it were. came down to. They I were. left. Yeah. And came back, and everyone was in a better mood about an hour later. Oh, good. Like, including Bob. Yeah, it was fine. And ultimately, and this is, I said this to my fellow coach here uh, this morning, there's two kinds of little league coaches. I mean, not to get uh, stupid about <laughs> oh, it. Oh, yeah? But, like, so there's, like, we played all of our kids. We made sure that all 12 of our kids got, like, there's no requirement that they get defensive playing time. But they all played in every single one of the games. And because of the way mandatory play works, uh, because they're all batting, they don't have to be on defense. Everybody has to bat, but not everybody has to go in the field to play. Everybody has to bat unless magically your worst hitter is injured. Right. So that's what I'm getting at here. So we played everybody. Like we even sent out in that disastrous fifth inning, we sent out a non-ideal defensive alignment in our outfield because we'd gone four innings without with the same three kids on the bench. That's just what we had done. It was working, and we didn't want to mess with it. And then finally, it was like, we got to get these kids in. Where can we put them? And by the way, you can never hide them. 
the ball will always find you. It's fucking. <laughs> it's crazy how it's, that works. Yeah. It's a. It's the golden rule here. It's inviolable, <laughs> and so of course in that inning, the the kid that we put in at third base missed a throw to third base that would have easily gotten I think the second out of the inning. Like he just he he lets it go by instead of making the easy catch and tag on a base runner, and then. Uh, also in that inning, the kid that we put in left field, a ball gets hit, like probably their best hit of the game, gets hit over our left fielder's head. But it's not a, it wasn't smoked. It was just sort of popped out there. And the problem with a, a ball that's hit over any outfielder's head at this level is like even the best of them, that's a 50 50 ball. Like what looks, again, a routine play. It is really hard. Yeah to be 150 feet from where this ball was hit to watch it go into the air, know that it's over your head and then position yourself correctly, moving back and make the catch. And he didn't do it. He took uh, like two big steps in before he realized that it was going over his head. He starts to retreat. He throws his glove up and it goes over his head by about six inches. And the kid that we had had in there before is more likely to have made that play. Uh, still, it's a 50-50 right. play, even for a good little league outfielder, right? And it's probably more like a 30-70 play for the kid that we had in there. And so, like, my uh, coaches are, like, beating ourselves up about not having the strongest possible defense out there. But what I said to him is, like, look, you can either live with the fact that we play all of our kids and like that kid showed up to every fucking practice. Yeah. He worked his ass off just as hard as everybody else on the field. He doesn't deserve to sit on the bench for six innings and watch his buddies try to play baseball without him. Right. Like put him out there, let him do his best and the, the cards will fall, fall where they may. And by the way, it's those sorts of kids who surprise the shit out of you in big moments and make, make plays that you weren't expecting. Right. It's, it's, it, it happens a dozen times a year. So whatever. To me, you'd rather live with yourself with that being the outcome than be the asshole coach who uh, I get the lineup for this team. And by the way, like I, I again, you can you can live you can choose to live your life believing the absolute worst about everybody in the world or believing uh, to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? Like, and I tend to want to give human beings the benefit of the doubt, but we get the lineup for them. And we played them earlier in the week, and, and there's one kid on this list who they say is an excused absence, right? Because you have 12 kids on the team. They're all supposed to play, but of course, you know, it's fucking Little League Baseball. The mom goes on vacation or whatever. Like, uh, yeah, Not everybody can make every game. But I look at the name. I'm like, huh. And then I look at my scorebook that I kept for the previous game, and I'm going down the list. Every kid in their lineup had two hits against us. Uh, except for one. Mm. One kid struck out twice. <laughs> and it's the kid who struck out twice who's curiously uh, has the excused absence But at least today. he's not there the whole game, not like Culpepper. Right. So there's that way of handling a situation where it's like, ah, it's a little suspicious yeah. that the kid who had the terrible game all of a sudden can't show up to the elimination tournament. Yeah. Like, that's uh, that's <laughs> awfully convenient. Uh, and, then, and then there's this other team where... We're watching the championship game today, and it's between the team that beat us and this annoying-ass team from Culpepper who— I have to tell you about Culpepper for a second as a place. This is a place that when I was growing up, it's about an hour south of D.C., an hour north of Charlottesville. 
This is a place that until 20 years ago was rural nothing. And now it's like considered Northern Virginia, which it's not, but it's like, it's these fucking new money bullshit. <laughs> uh, what can I compare it to? It's suburban sprawl. It's, uh... it's but it's but it's it's exurban. Yeah. It's it's people. It's people in coming Georgia after after it, Georgia yes. four hundred right. comes in, being like, "We're Atlanta now." Yeah, <laughs> they, they, it was so their fan base, which I've had experience with just this one time. The vibe that I got was South Carolina fans. Just this weird, yeah. like. What do you have money? Why are you so trashy? <laughs> What's that about? Yeah. So their coaches are like they're these big like they're like football players. The, what it is? They're like a fucking annoying softball team. They're like they're, everybody's always chanting. chanting. They have yeah. they have different chants for different parts of every fucking at bat. They're screaming as the pitcher's going into his windup, and like hey, that's just shitty. We're talking about nine and ten year old kids here, children, and. And then, and then after the ball is hit, their coach. So oftentimes you're watching the little league game, and a ball gets hit, and a coach, uh, me for example, will yell, "Fucking run!" Like I won't say, you don't fucking, say "fucking," but like because he's just standing there in a box. It's like go, 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 run, 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 like that sort of shit, yeah. right? But you're clearly yelling at your team, like, or you're saying like, uh, uh, "Run through the bag," or like, uh, "Okay, round the bag here. Watch you're the throw. Coaching. Watch the throw." I'm coaching, right? I'm coaching. This other guy, their first base coach, would just like, uh, like a savage yell anytime a ball was hit in play, as and it's directed at the defense. Like it's like clearly directed at the defense to try to psych them out as they're just making routine baseball plays. Which is just like incredibly shitty of you to do. No, and no one calls them out on it. Right. So, like, what are you gonna like? What, what, yeah. you can, what do you call? Yeah. What do you call? You can say something. Don't yell. So eventually, I know what you're doing. Eventually, they. <laughs> I know what you're right. doing. Right. We know what you're up to, guy. <laughs> eventually, we get to the point where they finally get warned for screaming during the pitcher's windup, oh. where they're told like, oh, tone it down while the pitcher is actually going into his windup. You assholes, and they they sort of do, but they. They bring it right up to it, right? Like they're yeah. they're very much clearly still pushing the envelope. Uh, and then this is their, and you feel bad for being mad at the kids because like they've clearly been coached to do this. Like they believe that it is to their competitive advantage to have their kids screaming like banshees on the bench as the pitcher yeah, is trying to throw but their the moms baseball. All come with shirts with like baseball printed onto the front of it and their kid's name and number on the back of it and a hat that says baseball mom and another t-shirt that says pitches be crazy. So like, I have a feeling the kids aren't that great either. Yeah. Like I said, South Carolina fan base. Anyway. Uh, and then the, and they do this, like they're, they keep doing that. Who are we? Call pepper. Who are we? Call yeah, pepper. Who are weird. we? It's, it's like they, they do the who are we chant like a thousand times. This is the team against which we want that great game that we played. This was against that team. Oh, okay. Right. We be, so this is the team that we beat to start the entire tournament off with. Anyway, they make it to the championship game. 
Boo. Oh no, not the champion. The semifinal game against yeah, semi- Bo. Louisa. And because uh, we're losers, uh, I was deeply invested in the outcome of this tournament, even though we weren't in it any longer. So we stuck around and watched the other semifinal game and then also watched the final today. Culpepper against Louisa yesterday. And coming up in the sixth inning. Yeah, last inning. In the last inning. They were inning, down by a little. They were down by a few runs. They needed to rally to win the game. Uh, there's now there's two outs. The f- the person who was scheduled to hit fifth in that inning was one of their weak hitters. Uh, somebody who hadn't produced anything over the course of the last couple of days, and uh, mysteriously he has a hand injury and can't bat in that position. And so they go to the next kid who is one of their more productive players. And so with two outs at the end of your season. You can be the coach who encourages your worst batter or one of your worst batters to go up there and give it his fucking best. Or you can tell him to play up the fact that his hand really hurts and he can't go out there. And so, therefore, he gets skipped without penalty in the lineup because it's fucking Little League Baseball. Right. They're not going to call it an automatic out. And instead, the next ki- it's just next kid up sort of situation. And by the way, uh, righteously so, that kid strikes out to end the game. Uh, and you feel bad. I, I I do. I even feel bad saying it now that that kid righteously struck out to end the game. But if there's any amount of of truth to the fact that these coaches were manipulating yeah. the batting order in order to make it so that that kid didn't uh, potentially end the season for them, then that's like that's such it's so profoundly shitty. And yeah. I know that they're not self reflective enough for it to actually bother them in the way that I wish it bothered them when they lay in bed at oh, night. Oh, this is not uh, going to bother about, them at all. They can easily right. explain this the way I'm doing the best for the team. Blah, you know, it, it's an easy way to get right. around. And like, so that's what I said to our my like. You can either be a guy who feels bad about the fact that you got all your kids on the field. Like, if that's what you have to live with, fine. At least you don't have to live with the fact that you're that asshole yeah. who's doing that sort of thing. Anyway, they they ended up uh, losing that game. And then, the as I said, the, the team that beat us ends up winning the whole thing this afternoon. So. Oh, well, good for them. It was fun. Yeah, good for them. And ultimately, though I was sort of hoping that the other team would win, it's best for everybody that – this kid gets to keep playing baseball this summer. This because this yeah, the this, more eyes that see him, the better. This kind team of. will go as far as this little ten-year-old can take him, and that's that's for the best. And yeah, what is that? Uh, fucking forty-five minutes about that's uh, fine. little league it's baseball. Pleasant. Jesus Christ! It's pleasant. Now we can talk about this bullshit. Yeah. Uh, we didn't mention that that Titan submersible that went down no, last no, week. No, 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 this no, 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 a, no, 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 to. This is a very... No, I will keep talking until you change the subject, Bob. Bullshit. You okay? I All know. Right. No, I know. All right, that... you're making me do this. I know that we have a quick two sentences. <laughs> Lori's raised a hand. Move uh, along. A two sentence speech here about what's going on. Everybody knows the story. It sort of dominated the news cycle for a while. We don't have to recap it. Abe, yes. you are. Picture yourself this. You're a single man, no kids, yeah. uh, but but way more money. IRS yeah. pays way yeah, better yeah. than it currently does. Huge piles of disposable income. And uh, uh, you're now a major thrill seeker, right? You you, you are an adventurous type. A lot of changes for Abe. <laughs> you, you, seek, you seek death-defying thrills uh, out there in the world. And... Uh, 
putting myself in that position, right? Huge piles of disposable money, so much money that you don't you won't miss a quarter million yeah. dollars if you want to spend it. And also being someone who who likes to death defy yeah. in interesting ways. There's still zero chance that I'm putting myself in a submersible uh, tin can that then sinks to the bottom of the ocean in order to look out uh, eight inch around porthole at the Titanic wreckage right. and then pull a push a button that then drops weights and allows you to ascend to <laughs> you please stop. With the emojis, Lori. Uh, <laughs> anyway, do you see what I'm saying here? Is that the the last place on earth that I would be with an endless supply of money right. and also an endless appetite for death-defying thrills and chills yeah. is the bottom of the fucking ocean to look at something out of a small porthole window that I can see in full HD glory on my, presumably I have a home theater system that is quite impressive. Right. I can watch all of James Cameron's movies yeah. and his, in particular and the his, Titanic one. his documentary movie as well about the, where he went down to the bottom of the, of the various trenches in the various oceans of the world. Uh, what is this yes. about uh, uh, a person who thinks this is what they want to do with their time and money and and death-defying experiences? I don't get it at all. It's been two minutes. Yeah. I don't get it either because, you know, I would I would neither want to go in space or the bottom of the ocean, especially with those weirdo animals that are also live there. Uh, but I definitely would not want to do that. I mean, you're just looking at some wreckage. Like, there's no action. At least in space you can look down and see, oh, look at that ball of blue. Like that, but I don't get this thing at all. Why you right. has no appeal for me whatsoever, and I'm, you know, I'm not just saying that because they're all dead now. Uh, okay, speaking of unspeakable wealth, moving to the thing. It's a good segue. <laughs> uh, it is actually a good segue because if you have a quarter million dollars to spend on a ticket, so here's here's the way to set this up. Because Abe, I know that you will disagree with the thesis that uh, Peter Singer raises in his article. Which, by the way, this will be about a, a conversation we're having about a piece from the New York Times Magazine from 1999 called "The Singer Solution to World Poverty." Peter Singer is one of uh, I think he's still alive, actually. But he's one of the 20th century's sort of more famous uh, modern philosophers. He's a, a utilitarian type. Uh, they and this, believe something, something. Utilitarians? Yeah, they, utilitarians, do. It's about the greater good. And also... Um, See why school doesn't work? <laughs> I'm going to get I'm going to allow Lori's definition of uh utilitarianism to uh to be what we're working with there. Uh he wrote a piece called The Singer Solution to World Poverty. It will be in the show notes. I'll make sure it's a gift article so everyone can read it. That's uh, my gift to you. Uh he wrote about how uh he can solve the world's uh poverty problems. And what he his solution uh, or what his recommendation would be to anyone with a quarter million dollars in such wild consequences of our actions. I found it. That's right. He's a, a strict consequentialist, right? He believes that because that is very clearly a luxury good, right? This this trip to the bottom of the ocean to see a long lost Titanic wreck. 
Uh, that is a, an immoral act. That is an immoral waste of your money. So, Abe, why is Peter Singer wrong to suggest that it is, in fact, a, a desperately immoral thing to do to spend a quarter million dollars to go down to the bottom of the ocean when instead, for, for a mere $250 or what have you, you could literally save the life of a toddler in Somalia or, or other long, awful uh, places in the world where it's difficult to get a person from infancy to being a six or seven year old kid. And if you can get them to being a six or seven year old kid, their chances of surviving and thriving, relatively speaking, into adulthood are uh, are much increased, right? right? So if you can just get them through those first few early years with an intervention as simple as just a couple of few hundred dollars, uh, how is it that it is at all morally acceptable to instead spend a quarter million dollars on a ticket to the bottom of the ocean where you're going to die? You know, so... In in the article, uh, he was talking about like this scenario. I think the, the the character's name was Bob, right? Like Bob, like had the Bugatti. Yeah, he has a car, and uh, he really likes his Bugatti. It's worth a lot of money. The value keeps going up. He, you know, and, and he's presented with this choice where like some kid's gonna get run over by a train. Uh, he could. First of all, I want to interrupt you yeah. here. Uh, this is the dumbest fucking hypothetical <laughs> because nobody has a car yes. that appreciates in value yeah. over the long term. That's not a, that's not a thing. Like there's Bob in this example is treating his Bugatti as a car that is the it it. it it's where he's poured all of his investment retirement income into. Right. He hopes to one day he keeps it because he likes it. And then one day he's going to sell it and live off the income from having sold this classic car. Right. That's not how anything also, works, Peter. Yeah. And, and to explain the way, like a very big, uh, like plot hole, uh, this Bugatti, for some reason, they're not, they're not able to insure it for whatever reason, because you know, then, right. Just to, basically, it's like this would be a loss. Like he would suffer well, a great that, loss. Well, I mean, for the for the game to work, yes, you have you to have just to, close right. that. Like, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Here's money. Right. Like, but usually, Bob like, also has to be Bob over. also has to be such a dummy that he parks it on the fucking railroad right. tracks. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. I think I'll just leave my fucking investment, my entire retirement investment vehicle, literally, uh, <laughs> on the railroad tracks. Yeah, it's uh, a very clunky setup to like a very obvious. P- you know, you want to know, okay, this is the situation. Either, you know, save your hide or, like, help somebody. Or, like, you know, in this case, I guess the Bugatti is supposed to be some inconsiderate amount. I mean, if it was, like, uh-huh, yes. right? It's supposed to be it's such a big expense. A $30 dinner or... Right. I mean, so it's funny because before I ever read this, and I feel like we haven't introduced it, but whatever, um, I used to get every Christmas... When I went Christmas shopping, my first stop was to Starbucks to get an eggnog latte. And they're like five, six dollars. And then in the same day, I like learned how many calories someone from an impoverished country consumes in a week. And also separate fact of like they live on the cost of my latte for a month. And so I stopped buying the lattes. I did not start donating money, but I don't, I, I was like, I can't buy eggnog lattes anymore. I can make them at home, right. but I don't do that anymore because it feels yucky. Right. Right. Because the eggnog latte has more calories in it than the uh, 
sad gas babies. Uh, the, the, yeah. <laughs> like it, it could literally, that eggnog latte could feed a child for a week two times. Right. One in the cost of it and two in the calories of it. Right. Right. But you know, what, what I find interesting uh, is that the, the motivations for people is, is generally like a self-serving thing. People seek to feel like they're a better person than wherever they actually are, right? So, like, it, I think um, it, it, they referenced a movie that I never heard of where basically, like, for, like, $1,000, the, the the lead character was to hand over a, like, a nine-year-old homeless kid uh, to somebody and under the belief of something innocent, and it turns out, actually, they were going to, like, organ, you know, they're going to take all his organs and kill him and do whatever. Right, it's about a Brazilian movie called Central Station, and the character scoops up a nine-year-old from like the city center where there's a bunch of orphans and delivers them to a rich couple out in the suburbs right. uh, under the belief that they're going to be adopted. And then her friend is like, Oh no, hey, you really yeah. believe that yeah. you really believe that adoption shit. Cause I heard on Alex Jones the other day about how all the nine-year-olds are being taken out to the suburbs to have their organs harvested. And that's, what's really going on there. And the idea is that this character is now going to work to try to uh, reclaim the child from the rich couple that she delivered them to to make sure that the organs aren't uh, being harvested right. from it. And, and, and put themselves in, at, at considerable risk, right? Like they have to go back and do this. And as the audience, I think the argument they're getting at is the audience, you are expecting them to do that. Like this would be a bad person if they were like, ah, oh, got that wrong. And then you move on with your life, right? Like I got a TV. Right. Fuck that kid, right? Like, everybody would be critical of that character. They would hate that character. And they're basically, they're arguing, like, you're in a way that character in other ways. Like, you you don't need to go to dinner. You could, uh, give, you could give $200 to some cause, and, you know, and he gives, like, UNICEF's number or whatever. Like, you could do this. Like, you could do this, and you're not. Uh, right, you could do it right now. Right. Almost certainly. Anyone who's reading this article in the New York Times in 1999, you have $250 at your ready disposal that you're going to waste, even if you don't have it in your That's checking the thing. account. It's saying, like, you don't even need that much money. Right. Just, like, any money. Right. right. Even if you don't have it in your checking account right now, we can play the game where you're going to go out to dinner twice in the next month, right? Right. Or you're going to spend your money on your cable bill, or you're going to spend your money on whatever it is that you spend your money on that is beyond your uh, actual existential needs in terms of your survival. And uh, that's that's money that could be better spent ensuring the survival of uh, someone who exists right. outside of the realm of your current uh, daily experience. Right. And, 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 and I guess this is where, like, my disagreement w uh, with this whole concept is, because my thinking is that making people to, uh, feel bad about themselves is not a very persuasive way to deal with people right so they're gonna like it's not like persuasive to the oh yeah you're right well boy, silly me i've been eating out this whole week i didn't need to do that i can make a sandwich at home like that people are not going to receive it in that way right so like hey do you really need that sandwich with two pieces of bread yeah. though because if you did it on would you not survive with it on one piece of bread right and uh by the way you don't really need that mayo because that's just a. Uh, but also why is he wrong like I just feel sh that's why I didn't right, I didn't so want to do this one because I feel up. shitty. Right. We should set this but up it, also in terms of how this is Lori's assignment because right. this she had 
she because had I'm a, studying accounting, obviously. Right. This is part of her ethics class, and she had three different options to write about. And One was really dumb. It was like, you know, someone wrote a code, and then they got a new job, and the new job wanted them to write a code for them, so they just use the same code. And I just, like... Ugh, I don't care. Right. The other I, I don't option, care about this. The other option was to re- to watch uh, an old televised debate from uh, the late 90s, early 2000. It was 2007, maybe? I don't know. Uh, it was Big suit Jake Tapper? Oddly enough, it was Jake Tapper in a big suit. What is it? What, uh, what, like what, ABC? The, yeah, from the ABC days, and he looked like uh, like the the 2003 NBA draft oh, class that goes around from time to time. Of, of very it wasn't it wasn't quite that dramatic because <laughs> well, of because course he's not as big as they are. He's not as big as they are, and also he's not a fucking basketball player. Yeah. So like those guys comically wore much comically oversized I'm, I'm suits. Su- I'm surprised the uh, tailor industry survived those years because there, there was none of that. It was just like. Right. No adjustment needed. This, I'm just going to go two sizes up and be good with it. Uh, uh, anyway, it was amusing to see Tapper, uh, a, young, a youngish Jake Tapper hosting this thing, and, and fucking that asshole Paul Krugman was on the panel, oh, too. Anyway, yeah. you had to watch this this big performative, like, look, we've gathered all of America's greatest minds uh, of, of business and politics and journalism to discuss these these thorny ethical questions and listen to the, all these smart people talk their way through this shit and each one of them was an hour long and it's one of those sneaky assignments that you would get in school where it's like uh you could just watch the video and then respond to the video right. and you're like oh ooh, videos are better than reading i'll do the video one uh but also what always happens with that is like it's sneakily like 10 times as much work the, yes. the problem it I have said many times, I have conversations with people all day. My brain is now conditioned to respond way better to that. Like I learn a lot more, like a lot more from interaction rather than words on a page. But I would have to watch all of them or there are like 10 to choose from and the assignment doesn't make it super exactly clear what it wants from me and then I got further clarification of what it wanted from me and it made it seem harder to try to find one conversation when this one's just here right so it's like okay watch this talk between all of these people and it then made it like too many choices apply something that Kant's like apply one of Kant's arguments about ethics to something fucking to something. Paul Krugman said right. like it's it, like oh god now I have to go options. through and like like because it's not written there's no transcript so it's not like no, you can refer that's not to the a problem for me no I know but that's the thing is like you basically have to transcribe an hour of goddamn audio just so that you can then respond to it whereas this is just a 2,000 word essay right. that you can read and constantly only refer 500 to 500 words that I'm supposed to write like not supposed to I'm allowed to write way more but the minimum is 500 words which is like nothing that's, n- that's no amount of words that's me clearing my fucking it's throat it's gonna be more that's yeah like, you that's like two and a half seconds sentences of of a rant of mine it's like one sentence for you yeah you're the worst anyway so i convinced her that the best thing to do is to read the the singer essay here and then respond to that i just Uh, it just makes me feel bad about myself because my reaction is yeah yeah Mm -hmm, he's right i'm shit but the thing people uh 
people seek to, again, to feel better about themselves. So like the, like, I, you know, if you look at the, uh, the audience that's uh, watching this, the, the, the character who's uh, supposed to go back and like put themselves in harm's way to, to get, to save the kid, uh, they stand in judgment of her to feel better about themselves, right? It's very self-serving, right? The whole thing is uh, the the actual thing that they're criticizing, the fact that they sent a kid up to their death is a secondary thing. Like the primary thing is to feel better about themselves. People are just continually going to seek doing that. So like you have to kind of take that right, into well, consideration. Your, your moral intuition is that the point of the thought experiment is that your moral intuition is that it is wrong to sell a child for a thousand dollars who's then going to be killed, right. right? Like, and even if you raise it to ten thousand dollars, you're and oddly enough, your moral intuition the higher the amount of money gets, it becomes more repulsive yeah. almost, right? Like, so you wouldn't sell a kid for a thousand dollars, uh, but also it would feel way grosser to sell a kid for a million dollars in some way, right? Like, it's, <laughs> somehow that's even fucking worse. As, like, not that they're gonna torture them any more yeah. or less because but of the, the money difference. But you're profiting off of that. It's, it's bad enough it's happening. You're making money off it. And, and, right, and, the thousand dollars will spend quick, right. and it's like on on to the next one. Yeah. With the million, it's like you've got you're like looking at all of the 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 bounty that you have. Like every time you take a bite of that really nice piece of sushi or whatever <laughs> that you're spending your million dollars on, it's like, up, oh, yep, there's that kid's kidney I'm chewing on now. But I guess. like, I need to write this essay, so I don't I don't see an argument against it. I see what Abe is saying, where. It's not a good incentive. Like if you're trying, if I'm trying to convince people. The problem is that it's an infinite, if you take it seriously, it becomes utterly unsustainable. And so what his actual argument is, is that some percentage of people will give some small percentage of their wealth uh, this $250 that will have so from Peter Singer's perspective he is compelled to write this because he believes that even if only 1 in 100 people who were to read this essay were to give $1000 or something then all of a sudden that much more money is being spent on saving lives and so he has done the 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 ethical thing even if 99 right. out of 100 yes. people ultimately don't yeah. so you could look at it from that but but to take it seriously would be the utter unraveling of the global economy yeah. right like, okay but uh, but 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 maybe that would be good right so then but what to what end then because then if ultimately if you can only if you can raise this if you can raise the standard of living of the most impoverished parts of the world up from uh, a child mortality rate of a hundred out of every hundred thousand kids like I don't know what the fucking it doesn't the numbers don't matter but if you can raise the relative level of of general affluence of X country from a third world into the second world by eliminating the excess in the first world you will have robbed the first world of the engine that produces excess wealth right. that then raises the third world out right. of poverty right it, like it, are you saying it would be like diminishing returns ultimately yeah it is an it is a game of diminishing returns that okay. ends that ends with a belief that Maybe we shouldn't have all of this affluence in the world at all, that we would be better off uh, 
not living in an industrialized modern society because there are such disparities from one group to the next. If it means if if the ultimate issue is we have all of this affluence and they do not, and therefore that the, 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 the balance is off and we need to uh, affect that balance in a meaningful way, ultimately you end in a situation where, I mean, not that everything is zero sum necessarily, but doesn't it ultimately lead you to the conclusion that affluence itself is bad yeah that, that any any stratification whatsoever is morally unacceptable well also i mean is the this excess or accumulation of wealth is is it because does that like uh result in the other half or most of the other people suffering like is it on the backs of the other people like is there a relationship between the- it is because all our clothes are made in fucking sweatshops. I mean, in some meaningful way, you can you can find those sorts of connections and say we have benefited from, like Lori says, sweatshop labor or something. The people who made this computer, yeah, even like uh, the, this the, the, the dongle in my hand that I'm playing these with. These fancy, like environmentally friendly cars uh, are oper- Like there's like some mineral that kids in like Africa are pulling from the ground. Yeah, like, they're mining. Right, so it's like. You're doing. You're, right, you're the, feeling the, well. The lithium yeah. mines in Congo right. or wherever so, they yeah, are. So yeah, so people yeah. are like feeling. Oh, we're doing great things about the environment, but then it's like it it comes on the backs of. Okay, but what what also follows from Singer's argument is a lot of this effective altruism stuff, right? Yeah. So not that I don't think that Singer in particular is one of these guys the who's super concerned about earn to give the future. Like, right. The, so there's the earn to give people. And then there's also like Sam Bankman Freed, that uh, crypto scammer guy, yeah. was super into worrying about future generations. Rather, So rather than donating $250 to try to make sure that some Ethiopian kid makes it from the age of 18 months to seven years old, he would say that $250 is better spent worrying about the 25 billion people who are to be born over the course of the next uh, 35 years or whatever, right? Like their concern, the, where this ultimately leads is you should be, we should, we are so severely indebted to future generations uh, much more so than we are to ourselves or to anyone here uh, in important ways, which it gets such it, it immediately be it immediately becomes like super big brained yeah. right like well, for uh, you it sure does no just in that meme way where it's yeah, like, like uh right the, the big yeah. exploding brain yeah. meme yeah. that is uh is frequently deployed in amusing ways but like the idea like oh you. i could give yes right here obviously i'm doing a great job <laughs> of explaining it but like i could eat this bowl of rice yeah. and it would be good and i would be uh and that's the normal brain right or i could give the bowl of rice to the homeless guy yeah. who uh would otherwise go hungry and that's the slightly more neurons are firing and then there's the big giant brain that's like i could plant the rice and the rice could grow and it could feed 40 fucking right. billion chinese yeah. uh 50 years from now right. and that's supposed to, like and the idea that we're supposed to worry about that sort of thing or that we can be expected to take on that level of concern for people who exist outside of our experience is very silly and it's okay. it, it's counter to your experience you're but not I, but the question i have to answer it, it, this isn't helping it says, give an account of what Singer's main claim is and his arguments to support it. That I got. Do you agree? My answer is yes. I can't get out of it. I can lie, but he's right. 
Why or why not? Um, Because I'm shit? (laughs) And then apply one of the ethical theories we've studied to derive a conclusion, which like, okay, now I'm even less sure. Give a clear statement of your view along with two original arguments. And here I am with two people. So (laughs) uh, back to that. What I, I think that I'm sort of responding appropriately here, which is that okay, it, well, is, write it, down. it is unreasonable for anyone to expect me to live as Jesus Christ lived, essentially, which is what, what Singer is, is demanding of us, that we should impoverish ourselves in the hopes that uh, some other, that, like, first of all, and he acknowledges this in the context of the, in the text of the essay, where he says, a lot of people will say, well, I don't know how effective my $250 is going to be. And he's like, well, I accounted for all of that. Don't worry. I did all the math. And ultimately, if you give this money to UNICEF, it will do more harm than good. And it will do more more good than your enjoyment, your guilty, awful uh, enjoyment of that fancy dinner that you're going to go out for uh, is going to but bring But how you. is he wrong? I understand his approach isn't right. But... The theory seems right. So, okay, so this utilitarian philosopher thinking, like the definition that they have here, as you mentioned earlier, Lori, is that one who judges whether acts are right or wrong by their consequence or just the outcome or whatever, right? So, like, there are many ways to persuade people to give money. This is one of the most ineffective ways to do that. Like, But he's not saying persuade people to give money he's saying give money right that is but right that's the so why is it why is it wrong why is it always wrong singer would say it's always wrong for you to go to the grocery store and spend more money than you need to spend to survive when you could take that excess and send it to somebody who actually needs it i mean the only argument so the reason if there's a why isn't it always wrong it's because it makes me happy right but the thing i feel that i like it right but that's the thing. So, like, the, 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 the utility of the argument, them presenting those facts, like, why do you need to do this? Like, when you don't actually need to do this thing, is, to, is for them to agree with you, to say you're right, right? But people are not going to do that if you make the argument that way. I think that the approach is actually undermining what they actually want, which is as many people to give $200. And this is not the right. way to do Abe, it. Abe, what did you spend on that fancy wall art that's hanging behind you on that wall? I, I don't know. $50? Yeah, let's say $50, yes. Let's say $50. So you had $50 to spend on that fucking wall art, which means nothing to you, right? You yeah. did it because of peer pressure. Yeah, you felt people think bad. I'm a serial killer because I don't have right. any stupid <laughs> fucking art on my wall. Some right. So the utility of that piece of beautiful art that's hanging... Uh, on your wall back there is that it makes your friends less likely to call you a serial killer yes. in the future. Yes. And that's important uh, to me. Right? <laughs> that's important to you. Serial <laughs> but if that $50 could have saved a life in Somalia, yeah. wouldn't it have been wrong of you to spend that $50 in that way? Right. No. And because this is a consequentialist argument, he's set, he's naturally set himself up to be the victor here, which is the belief that we have taken on faith that that $50 will have saved a life, right? right? 
and that it will have done more good in the saving of that life than it is simply recycled back into the American economy, right? Which is that you went to fucking Pier 1 or wherever it is that you spent your $50. You went to Kohl's, and that's what was there. I think it's homegrown. Okay, whatever. Uh, you spent your money there. Uh, somebody uh, works there, presumably, and then there's an HR department right. at that company because somebody fucking works there. And then uh, also there's a, a payroll department, and uh, fucking the yeah. money spins around I'm and the economy goes uh, around. A lot. Yeah, I mean, I'm holding this whole thing up. I mean, I talk all the time about how my clients' money stops at me. Yeah. Like, I don't. Then I mean, yeah, we eat food and stuff, but like, I don't employ anyone. Right. <laughs> right. Well, you've got you've got fucking four dependents. Uh, I know. Three but people like, and a dog. Why, why are my dependents more important than the dependents in Somalia? Because they're your. Because they're your dependents, right? I mean, it's just the fact of the matter. And like, I used to give. Lori sort of a hard time about the fact that her clients spend just what is an obscene amount of money on personal upkeep. Like, and it's not an amount of money. Like if I did not have Lori to give me uh, truly next level professional haircuts uh, that, that she gives me, I wouldn't go spend $60 on a Verifying. men's haircut. Right. I would 52 go. 52 plus tip is what he's referring to. Right. I would go to. I would, I would either have one of those razors that I can do it myself, right? I would give myself bad haircuts at home, or I would go to uh, Supercuts or whatever. Super great clips cuts. Whatever barber place is handy and, and give $8 plus tip to whoever was behind the chair that day to cut my hair. And part of it is, in fact, a moral impulse of mine that I believe that it would be wrong in the same way as we started the show tonight, not discussing the ice creams that we had in our hands, right? So Lori got a Haagen-Dazs bar out of the freezer. From that, Christmas, which was six months ago. That I, th I think I bought it in January. Yeah, because no. It, no, no, listen. Because it Were went on sale, sale yeah. after uh, Christmas. January because it was, was a, also six months ago. Like a candy cane bark Haagen-Dazs bar where it's got like the peppermint uh, candy really good. in the chocolate around the delicious vanilla ice cream in the middle. Uh, yeah, delicious, but we didn't make our way through it, right? So Lori had one still in the freezer some six months later. She gets it out tonight. She has a bite, and she's not going to eat it because it's got freezer burn all over right. it. Now I'm like, well, it's just ice crystals, and it's still a delicious Haagen-Dazs ice cream bar. It was after he was giving me shit for eating it and not letting him eat it. I wasn't giving you shit. I wasn't going to eat the Haagen-Dazs bar. Happy for Lori to eat it. But then she, all of a sudden, it was going to go to waste. Yeah. She didn't want to eat it anymore. I'm like, well, it is worse for it to go to waste than it is for me to eat it, right. even though I've taken... To whom? I've taken the position that it would be bad for me to eat the Haagen-Dazs right. bar because it is not in keeping with my uh, current goals, yes. right? So I don't want to eat the Haagen-Dazs bar because I want to be healthy. But further, I don't want to waste the Haagen-Dazs bar because to me that's 
ultimately it's calories right. and I can turn that calories into energy. Right. Uh, more likely, of course, it turns into a uh, stubborn belly fat, which is a phrase <laughs> that I've heard on, uh, uh, t- on the TV, TV yeah. infomercials for many stubborn. years. Right. It's, it's, it is stubborn incredibly belly stubborn fat. belly fat. <laughs> I am the definition of a person with stubborn belly fat. No matter what I've done my whole life, stubborn belly fat yeah, sticks around. You've never talked to a nutritionist. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, I'm sitting here holding a melting, frozen Haagen-Dazs bar With in my hand, burn. trying to decide. In between the ice cream and the chocolate. So there was freezer burn on the outside, which I was willing to forgive. But then in the late, you know, you have the ice cream and then it's dipped in chocolate. Right. So between the ice cream and the chocolate was a layer of ice crystals, which was gross. It's all just ice crystals. It's all the way down. I took a bite. It was all ice crystals all the way down. The point is that I had a moral dilemma on my hands entirely created by myself because I believe I've somehow convinced myself that there's a moral dimension to the eating of the ice cream bar. And the having of the plastic bags in the closet. And the moral dimension to putting the ice cream bar in the sink and simply letting it melt down the drain, uh, which clearly there's, there really shouldn't be one. And that's ultimately where I come down to with Singer is like, yes, we can create a moral dimension to every little aspect of our lives, but I don't actually think that most of these actions have moral components in a way that matters, right? So you can be an ostentatious haver of great wealth who displays their wealth in disgusting ways. And like Eric Schmidt, Eric Schmidt is a, the, the Google guy who's no longer with Google, yeah. but he just, he bought a boat on clearance uh, that was like, it was captured by the Danes or something. Like so It's at some port somewhere and it's a Russian oligarch's uh, giant yacht. And so they were selling it on the cheap and on the cheap is like, uh, I don't even remember the number, Hundreds but it's like million? fucking tens of millions tens of, of dollars, okay. right? Many tens of millions of dollars that he bought this boat at auction. And, like, in some regard, that's fucking gross. Like, uh, Jeff Bezos has got that fucking yacht, and it's got a bad mermaid carving of his girlfriend on the front of it, and he spent, like, fucking half a billion dollars on it or something. And, like, that's fucking awful. And, like, there are people who die every day, and he's out here spending a billion fucking dollars on a stupid boat that he's going to spend 40 days a year on and the rest of the time. But at the same time, he's employing, like, a whole fucking crew of hundreds all of the time. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that it is uh, it was built by many hundreds of people, right? And so, like, and that's what makes the fucking world go round. So, yeah, we can sneer at the filthy rich at the way that they choose to spend their money, uh, but ultimately, uh, we have to take the moral dimension out of a lot of the things that we do, rather than piling more morality right. into it. We just accept. So the argument has to be that the argument has to be that there is there isn't a moral dimension to existing in the world as it is right, right? okay but like, which like, philosopher said that to, and- to some extent we are products of the world that we are born into and we okay, can but none of the philosophers i read this semester said that yeah we can work at the edges to do what we can to make the world a better place but fundamentally you cannot live as a pauper uh for any extended period of time without uh, making yourself useless to the people that you aim to help, right? Like uh, at at some point, 
you can't work yourself to the bone for 60 fucking years sending every single penny that you make off to the poorest people in the world. You're just another, you're a tiny little drop in a constantly growing bucket to say nothing of the fact that if every goddamn, and this is gross, uh -oh. but if every, if every goddamn kid who was meant to die uh, makes it out of goddamn childhood, you know what? You know what notoriously happens when poor people make it out of fucking childhood? <laughs> Abe, answer the goddamn question, you coward. I'm part of this segment. <laughs> answer the question. You're going down alone. Apply one of the ethical theories we have studied this term to derive a conclusion. They reproduce is what they do. Wow. And they make more poor goddamn babies who need another $250 from the hairdressers of the Western world whose fucking sloppy, lazy husbands won't get a goddamn job. Uh, which, by the way, under Peter Singer's uh, situation here, we would be compelled to send every fucking penny that I would earn right. in my theoretical future job elsewhere because we've lived fine, lavish no, lives. No, we haven't. These I'm <laughs> exhausted. You've lived fine. Uh, these last few years. Uh, and I can't use my hand. I still have stubborn belly fat is what sort of uh, uh, lavish... Would go to a fucking nutritionist you might find out why i can't afford to go to a goddamn nutritionist when there are starving children in ethiopia at the moment are you out of your goddamn mind those starving people come in handy when you don't you know care for it uh so who, who could we apply to this uh to peter singer's situation here i think that all i have is i have epicurus who wants me to feel good and right. fuck? That's easy. Epicurus says uh, you should basically live as okay, a hedonist. Okay, but I feel bad not giving them money. He Don't... would say I should give them money. Yeah, he would say give a few dollars to assuage your guilt and then eat some fucking ice cream and uh, have okay. plenty of sex yeah. and eat good food and you'll feel better about things. He, then there's also the other one. Hold on. Um, the one I just did, who was nice. If I'm Socrates, modern, if I'm Socrates, mill, this mill person who clearly read the Declaration of Independence, mill, mill, he wanted it was a greater good thing, so it's better that I don't give them money, so that I buy. Right. If you can make any the the beauty of the utilitarian position is usually that you can make any counter argument as long as you set the consequences up in your favor right so that, I peter feel singer like that's shitty and dumb well sure but peter singer has set up the consequences to always be in his favor because he believes that a simple 200 dollars is going to save a life and if you set up the the terms of your experiment to be i just need 200 dollars to save a life well then you're gonna win well then you set up the different fucking terms of the experiment and you can win your your own way you can use his his own utilitarian fealty against him right because yeah he's kind of overlooking that the, the feeling of futility because like you know not every dollar you give goes to where it needs to go there's a lot of uh, a lot of hands that get involved a lot of overhead right so you have to accept his argument i when mean I, I think the point of like society would collapse and there would still be poor people but we wouldn't be able to help them yeah. works for me yeah, like, and ultimately, I guess. he's right to the extent that people should do more than they currently do, right? Like, that, that, that's a fine position to take. If people I was, like, a billionaire, I would do the thing where you drive fast cars. That looks fun. These these extreme deep space up in the sky things. Yeah. No. Yeah. 
Earth. Earth. Drive the cars fast. Yes. I get that. Yeah. On land. Yeah. Anyway, any more on Singer? Abe, do you have a, you don't like this guy, no. right? Because, I mean, uh, it's very like these <laughs> contrived arguments that he's making. Doesn't make any sense. And like I said, there's the feeling of utility, futility that people feel. Like it's like kind of like sidestepping a lot of problems with this way of thinking. How far past losing the Bugatti should Bob go? Imagine that Bob had got his foot stuck in the track of the siding, and if he diverted the train, then before it rammed the car, it would also amputate his big toe. Should he still throw the switch to save the kid's life? Yeah, you don't need a toe. What if it would amputate his foot or his entire leg? This uh, My solution to the trolley problem, which is essentially what this is, right? Uh, whereas... You always have to ask the person whose life is being saved. That's how you solve the and trolley that's problem. In the mill? No. Yes. He thought that it was okay if people wanted to kill themselves. He was the first one. Right. That and we've so, come across. Everyone's all, don't kill yourself. And then he's like, nah, yeah, it's fine. Do it. <laughs> uh, what Lori is finding out reading her ethics this year is that. Apparently, I got a lot of my influences from John Stuart Mill and David Hume, and I had sort of forgotten that. Uh, but I you like forget those everything. You act like you learn, and you don't, because you don't remember anything. Yeah. And your your Plato, your whole your whole thing is Plato. Your whole I'm just asking questions. I don't have any answers. Hey, what you the f- should feel stupid. That's, that's how your whole vibe is Plato. Hey, what the fuck happened in Russia the last couple of days? Real quick before I, we go. No. I, I it's a very it was a very strange weekend because like this uh, Prigozhin, this uh, the schmuck um, who has a very weird career trajectory where like it was like some prisoner selling hot dogs. Yep. He goes to prison. He has a catering service. Then he is uh, he's known as Putin's chef. Right. They call him Yevgeny Prigozhin, and he's been the head of this uh, what's called the Wagner division or the Wagner Julia group. Julia said that's like most of what the people who work on Russia at her job talk about are that group. Because they're the they're the mercenaries, they're a bunch they of fucking neo Nazis or something. And also, they literally would they go. Were, they're former prisoners. They literally that they yeah, freed. They. Literally go to prisons and like, hey, you want in? Uh, you know, we'll go to like mm-hmm. Africa or Syria or wherever, make more money than you would in the you know actual military, and also, hey, not in prison anymore, right? So it's like very tempting offer, and they go with it. And they have nothing to lose. Yeah. right. So he has he has Prigozhin has to this point been a, a Putin loyalist, yes. uh, but apparently found himself entirely fed up with like the Russian military hierarchy yeah. and decided that he was going to sort of maybe coup, maybe, right. maybe do a little coup. It wasn't clear, right? I mean, like he's been, he's been critical for months about like a lack of supplies and he's like, fuck it. This whole way of conducting this operation is terrible. And the heads of the defense ministry or whatever need to be sacked. Like a lot of this stuff, just like without, any sort of like Putin saying like shut the fuck up like he's just saying all of these things and then out of nowhere he took over like some like the equivalent of a Tampa like a city with like you know like a million people we were just people. talking about Tampa and like he just drives up and until some deal is brokered like he, unopposed driving like halfway to Moscow and it's just right, like right he gets to within 100 like 150 miles or something of Moscow with uh 
all of his fucking bad dudes with guns and tanks. Right. Uh, and this is like, <laughs> like you the, say, t- uh, the unusual story where like there's just like a lot of befuddlement. Like uh, like I didn't hear a lot of people like very strong like this is what needs to happen. People were like, what the fuck is happening? Like it was just like a lot of that the first like few hours where it's like nobody knows why this is happening or what's going on or how it's going to go. Right, and then they reach some sort of a deal, and Prigozhin's like, "All right, I'll I'll fuck off then, I guess. Like we, uh, I won't coup anymore, and I'll go to I'm going to take exile in Belarus, right. and which, like, first of all, that's sort of been described as like a puppet government of the Putin regime, anyway. Yeah, it's so, very bizarre that they were the ones that took the lead, right? And why would Prigozhin believe that he would be safe, right, in Belarus in of fact, all fucking places? He is- in no way safe, right? I mean, there's no way Putin is gonna let this thing just slide, right? I mean, he was kind of he made he was embarrassed by this whole episode, right? And also didn't seem to take the obvious route of blaming the CIA or, yeah. or U.S. Western interference Not for this that, entire he said, thing. I think he like said internal whatever. Like he kind of characterized this as an internal issue. Right, because he needs to keep Prigozhin close, apparently, because he doesn't actually have the power to depose him from his situation, or he would have, right? right. Like, he's allowed him to become more powerful and better organized than, obviously, his own uh, military is at this point. Uh, I don't know, and, and, and they've forgiven all of the... Yeah, they dropped, because, yeah, it was initially all these charges and, like, treason or you know all this all these things they're like ah never mind everything is fine and apparently they're not gonna they're not gonna punish any of these soldiers either like they're gonna just right because of you you you, you're allowed to do one sort of aborted coup because of all of the killing that you've done on behalf of the russian government (laughs) up to this point right a coup mulligan (laughs) i don't know we obviously haven't talked about uh this stuff much through the last couple of uh years uh and I don't have any greater insight than to just sort of point at it and be like, man, that's all fucked up, and I wonder what's going to happen. Uh, but I have to imagine that losing the support of this Wagner group is going to be really detrimental to any Russian hopes of of putting an end to this conflict in right. a way that they would want it to be ended, which is uh, with a Ukrainian defeat. Right. I mean, this yeah, this is in no way a, a good good thing for Russia. Right. Anything else big stuff in the news this no, week to hit on before we no, get on out of here? No, that was tight and we're done. All right. You've been listening to Cast Iron Brains, a podcast with Bob Nabe. Head over to brainiron.com for a show note. Uh, opening and closing themes were composed by Mark Gillig, tetramermusic.com, T-E-T-R-A-M-E-R music.com. I am on my way to Denver for a... Do you see how smoothly this goes when I produce your show, by the way? Yeah. If you just... Real- fucking focus and do shit instead of what do we do real fucking top tier episode this is going to turn into i'm sure we'll see i'm on my way to denver for my brother's bachelor party quick story about that i'm going to be there for a week i booked my flight for wednesday the 28th (laughs) uh, saving literally hundreds of dollars Right. Flying so, Wednesday to Wednesday instead of Friday to Sunday when the bachelor party actually is. Right. If I had flown Friday to Sunday, it would have cost hundreds of dollars more. Wow. Instead, I extend my visit. I get to visit more with my, my young niece and nephew. Stay for free is key to that. And also, I'm living at my brother's house for the week, so that makes things easier, too. But, but notably, I booked my flight 
for Wednesday the 28th with a return on when, on Wednesday the 5th, right? So that's that gives me a full week. A week. In Denver, that's how that works. My brother Jesse booked a flight for Wednesday the 28th with a return flight uh, of an hour later on Wednesday the 28th. Is mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why you don't book flights when you're super high. Uh, don't don't do that, Jesse. Uh, I don't I don't think the mistake was even realized until Andrew got a look at the flight itinerary and was like, "Hey dummy, you're booked for a return flight 45 minutes after you land." Which which bad. means I think you're going to be immediately accosted by TSA yes. and the FBI because you look like a drug mule when you do that. You just look like you must have a hundred grand in cold hard cash in your carry-on luggage, you dumbass. It would definitely be flagged, right? Like something is happening here. Yeah, nothing good happens when you get on a plane to go to Denver and then get right back on yeah. a plane to go back to New York, fucking twenty minutes later. Anyway, that's what I'll be up to next week. I. Doubt that we'll record an episode next week. No, you because then I'm you're coming back landing Wednesday and leaving again. And then I'm planning on leaving Thursday to go down and retrieve the kids from my dad's because they'll they'll go to South Carolina for the week. So so I get a week to myself. Nice. During which I will go see the all female revival of 1776, the musical about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Oh, neat. Yeah, so we have traditionally taken July 4th week off. Anyway, uh, so don't expect new content from us next week. Uh, Abe, when is your – you still got a few weeks before Aruba, is that right? Yeah, it's, uh, we leave on the 6th, that Thursday. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that'll overlap, right? So that yeah. that overlaps with us missing the week anyway. When so do you be get good. back? Uh, Sunday. It's pretty quick, yeah, Thursday to Sunday. Well, I mean, you, that big yacht, you can't you can't have it for an extended period okay, of time. Okay, so yeah, we'll be back the week of the 10th yeah. through whatever. Yeah. No. Anyway, did you, uh, I know we had a short week here this week, and I don't know your normal schedule. Did you make it to the movies this week? Three times. Three times? Hey, Three times. A, just go every night of the week? It was like, uh, there you know, are Wednesday, seven Thursday, days Friday. in a week. All right, let's yeah, see yeah. if I can guess. Let me pull up the Well, one movies. of them already mentioned last week that I was going to watch this week. Yeah, but Bob doesn't listen to you. Yeah, I don't know what you say until I listen back to it. Uh, I'm just, just listened. Just we wait. just listened to last week's episode. Bob only listens to himself. You know what? That was a good episode. I mean, we had a good talk last week. I, I think that was a good one. We've got The Flash. We've got that Pixar movie, Elemental. You've already seen The Flash and Spider-Man, Little Mermaid. All right, so I'm going to guess that you saw Asteroid City. I'm going to guess that you saw Elemental. And I'm going to guess that you saw... um, No Hard Feelings. Those are the three that I'm guessing that you saw. Two out of three. Went to go see Asteroid City, No Hard Feelings, and The Blackening, which uh, I will admit... A terrible trailer. Like if you ever watch it, it's like kind of like a spoof. Kind of, well, they play it for laughs. It's like this horror movie, not a lot of horror in it. Uh, or these black friends go to the woods and you know they have to play some game that's like themed around blackness or whatever. I'm looking at but, a uh, poster for the movie. It, it, the tagline is "We can't all die first because of right. the the trope. That's cute. First explored probably in Scream as or pointed out in Scream about the 
the black character always dies first. Scream right. 2. Scream 2, that was mentioned. Yeah. Seven black and friends go away for the weekend and end up trapped in a cabin with a killer who has a vendetta. Will their street smarts and knowledge of horror movies help them stay alive? Probably not. Is that coded language, the street smarts? Is that? Uh, I think they're probably playing at it. Uh, but yeah. Any good? Uh, relative to my very low expectations, um, like it, it was much better. And then like I went to Rotten Tomatoes, and it's like highly rated on, on both scores, like the fan one and the the critic one. So I was like, oh, I guess this was supposed to be a decent movie because like by all accounts, it's like – it seemed like it's just like a cheap kind of movie. This says it it's that. a 2022 film. Did it get? It's on some sort of strange release schedule or something. Yeah, that is weird, right? Maybe they, like very limited L.A. New York, like in December. Or maybe or Google's just wrong. It says because yeah. it also says release date June of 2023. So yeah, knows? I mean the, the, the maybe they it did it like, twice. Yeah, maybe it was like centered around like Juneteenth, so like they released it like time mm-hmm. one. Gotcha. But uh, I was, and the, the other two movies are, are fine. Asteroid City was pretty decent. Um, there was a uh, this. I'm surprised. I, I go to the movies a lot, and this is the first time it's happened. The, the the person seated next to me, to my left, like had he was reeking of some sort of bo, but like it was like the noticeable kind. Like, oh no! Just, like, and I couldn't like I was de- trying to develop my just breathe through the mouth strategy, and I couldn't, <laughs> oh and it was just. It was just uh, kind of distracting. You know the whole what? Time. It, that's appropriate because I guarantee you, he too was a mouth breather. <laughs> <laughs> the smelly fella next to you, also breathing through his mouth. And that was that asteroid city that you experienced. Yeah, asteroid city. Yeah. That's that's too bad. Did you did you change seats or did you just deal? No, it, I was like, no, it'd be too rude to leave. You know? <laughs> <laughs> did you chat him up? I'll bet you fucking chatted him up, didn't you? I did not. Uh, a little bit. Oh, all right. So that's uh, that's Wes Anderson's latest, right? Yes. There are like a million. I mean, he does this a lot, but like there's like a million known names in this thing. It's like every character. Yeah. Is, like, I love that guy's movies. I think his movies are great, and I don't know why people complain about him having a particular style. It is fine. People complain I mean, about he does stuff to have a particular style. Yeah. I'm surprised that you are appreciative of his movies at all because they're very precious. Generally, I don't like. I, I don't like his movies the first go around. Interesting. It's like, it's like you're doing a thing and then I'll circle back and I'm like, all right. And then like, kind of like I can like maybe the third viewing, I'll like it because like, oh, you're doing a thing and like I'm having right. to like, get so past So you that. can sort of yeah. allow yourself to see past the artifice of it to the story right. that he's telling and it, it works But for this you. one I like from the get-go because like he had another movie that like the French Dispatch or something. That one I was like, all right, I don't need to see this a couple of times because the first time I saw it in the theater, I was like, eh. Yeah, I don't think it, we haven't seen the French Dispatch yet. Still, no. I think it's that one that's streaming. Channel. I'm pretty yeah. sure it is too. You got to be in the mood, the right frame of mind to watch a Wes Anderson movie. I think the and problem w- I have is because they're all the same. I just want to watch the ones that I like so much. Yeah, I don't think that they're yeah. all the same. They're not it's all the just... same. That's not what I mean. But th- there was a time, the, another example is every time I tried to watch Almost Famous, I would end up switching to Jerry Maguire halfway through because it's doing that same thing to my like little inside emotions. And it's like Almost Famous. It's like, oh, this is nice. You know what else does this? Jerry Maguire. Just put that on. Yeah. Like and with Wes Anderson, it's like, Oh, let's just watch Royal Tenenbaums. Like, <laughs> like I'd rather just do the one that I know I yeah. like. And like Whereas, you said, you like it more on the second and third viewing. Right. 
So, like, yeah. that's what I end up doing with Wes Anderson movies. I've always gone back and forth between Life Aquatic and uh, and Rushmore as my Life favorite. Life Aquatic's my favorite. I think I ultimately come down on Life Aquatic probably because so many people don't like that one. Who doesn't like it? People think that that's where he, like, lost the way, and that that one's They're too dumb. twee and special, it's and I so disagree. Good. I think that's the best one, probably. It's a horrible reason to like something. No, I'm just saying I recognize in myself that sort of antagonistic approach to things, and as much as I love Rushmore, I think that... It is a less fully formed vision yeah, than Life favorite. Aquatic is. Plus, it's got uh, the wonderful David Bowie covers soundtrack. That, yeah. that guy does the David Bowie songs, which are spectacular. Uh, we watched the rest of the Arnold documentary last night, uh, episodes oh, two nice. and three. They were fine. Yeah, they were fine. They were good. I thought that they covered... What like the accusations against him as a as a, a groper of women in as acceptable a way as it can be covered in something that is obviously in Arnold's pocket and coming right. from Arnold's perspective and and his corner the entire time, and I think that he, I mean there are people who will say that this is not the case, but I thought he was appropriately chagrined by the whole thing, uh, and it's not clear that any of his actions were particularly heinous like in the the way that you don't want him grouped in with all of the worst offenders of the me too era right this isn't a harvey weinstein type he's just a good time guy who thought it was fun to grab tits and now realizes that it's not during a time those tits when are it was presented as a thing like all the way up until the man show like girls gone wild time like it was it's shitty but there's an expectation that, like, oh, you're going to get groped sometimes. I uh, I love Arnold. I think he's great. And he's such a weird character to me because I think that you're always getting an authentic version of who he is. It's this bizarre combination of artifice and truth in the right. same package all of the time. And it's – I don't want to say it's Trumpy. But it is sort of Trumpy, right? Where with Donald Trump, you feel like it's all a fucking show and also it's all 100% authentically Donald right. Trump. And Donald Trump is the worst possible version of it. And Arnold Schwarzenegger might be the best possible version of it. Right. Where like, yes, he's putting on a thing. I mean, Jack Black might be a good example. But he really means it. Right. Like Arnold really believes all of the just work hard and do your right. best oh, yeah. and good things will happen for you. Like he seems to fully embrace that and live it in ways. Jose Andres, there's tons of people right. who are like characters of themselves. Right. I just I enjoy the shit out of him. And I think that his naivete right. is is well earned in a weird way. Like, <laughs> right, I mean, the, the, the confirmation bias that he must have, right? Because he it, like applied all of these things. Like I'm going to work hard at this thing and then good things will happen. He works hard at it. And guess what? Good things happen to him. And he does it in different arenas and the same feedback he's getting. So he must think like, this is, must be the way it works. Right? Right. I do the thing and then I get like an immediate bottom, you know, positive feedback and I just continue to do that and he probably thinks everybody else has that same reality when in fact right and don't. it's particularly amusing like and 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 self-reinforcing because he's saying all of these things and he's on his he's got a weird hundred thousand dollar tank that he drives around yeah. his sprawling hundred million dollar California estate while he 
chews on uh, $300 cigars uh, sitting in front of his like comically 15 foot long personal fireplace as he reads a book that's just like a, a bible of arnold's life that's just oversized beautiful prints of him through the years right and then you imagine this person like as i'm watching this tv show and listening to him talk about like if you just believe it and work hard it will be true like instead yeah. you picture some destitute fucking shit covered asshole on the streets saying the exact same words yes and, i know and that's like 99 <laughs> out of 100 people are that right the yeah. ones who believe uh that things will turn out good if you work hard and try hard and and you're a good person uh you just end up uh covered in shit under a bridge somewhere uh but every once in a while, it is 100% yeah. true. And yeah, yeah, Arnold should believe that shit. And yeah, he should spread that message as best he sees. Uh, it, it's fine and good. Right. Uh, did we do anything else besides baseball no. and Arnold? No. Your dad's here. We haven't done anything. Yep. And Pops is here because he's got to watch the kids while I uh, go gallivanting off in Denver uh, to uh, drink too much. Because I'm much too old for uh, uh, bachelor parties. But But here we are. I'm going to have a nice, quiet time. Good. It's going to be really nice. Abe, you uh, got anything else for us tonight? Nope. Well, I guess that's all we've got for tonight, then. And we will talk to you next time. Later. You should bring this Peter Singer article with you. And every every, <laughs> every time... Oh, that's a good point. There's an ostentatious display of, of obs, obscene uh, wealth and waste. You should wave it in his stupid face. I'll, I'll try to work it in. Maybe like uh, during the ne next morning's breakfast when it's kind of like everybody's just relaxed and eating. Right. I can be like, oh, I was reading this interesting article. How, <laughs> how many fucking points. Ethiopians didn't make it to 40 because you had to have this fucking party, you piece of shit? <laughs> Happy birthday. Julia went to Montreal, as you did. Um, oh, nice. And her luggage was lost, which oh, it no. was returned. But you're, there's no guarantee of that, so... The guy, you know, the next day or two days later was like, you know, go ahead and start itemizing so that we can compensate you for it. It was a week's worth of clothes that she packed because yeah. there was no laundry. And she was like, if you ever want to feel really shitty, just like figure out how much you're carrying around. Just like, right, <laughs> just, oh, yeah, I need all that. Like thousands yeah. of dollars. Yeah. This is why, like, and I know we're done with this conversation and now the night is over, but, like, compared to Julia's luggage, I would have a hundred okay, bucks, maybe. but Bob, that's the thing. When you're spending more money on clothes, it's because you're not buying them from sweatshops. Bullshit. Because you don't need to, you don't need new Lululemon every fucking six months. Bull, like, I just don't buy it. I don't, I do not buy that a high quality garment uh, requires fucking being replaced three times a year. It it shouldn't. Right, but you keep spending money at Lululemon. That's what people do. I'm not replacing anything. What have I gotten rid of? That's not the point. I get rid of shit that sucks. The stuff that I was replacing did need... The stuff that I was buying from Old Navy did need constant replacing. Right, but is it is it not the case that most people could live far more austere lives than they do and but still live incredibly comfortably. Yes, Singer's but not if wrong you have there. nice things, if you're being realistic, like the things that are less shitty in, a, in an ethical business way are going to cost more. And if you have those things and you take them all and you put them in a suitcase to go somewhere else for a week, it doesn't matter how old they are. That's what they cost.
I think Abe's more sympathetic to this position tonight because he's wearing that fancy Nike pullover instead of <laughs> instead of oh, a instead of a fun run T-shirt that you're usually wearing uh, when we record these. But it's just the reality of the situation. I guess. Also, that's uh, going to Montreal for a week yeah. is obviously not acceptable no, either. No, but that's from the... part of that's part of it. It's like, do you want to feel shitty? Write down how much your suitcase costs for your vacation that you took for no reason. Change of scenery is a good reason. Yeah, but but look at different compared degrees. to a life, Abe. Compared to a child's <laughs> life. The proceeding was created with 100% human content. <laughs>